This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. One of the ways we live outside the walls is we obviously strive to live in holiness. And one of the ways that we can learn how better to live in holiness is to look at the lives of the saints. There are a number of ways to do that. Um, we've talked here on the show before about some saints' devotional books, some that that go through a different saint every day and tell you a little bit about their lives. There's also some wonderful biographies, hagiographies of saints that abound that you can find uh, wherever fine books are sold all throughout the history, all throughout the, the centuries of hagiographies that have been written. Uh, I hold in my hand, however, a different way to look at the lives of the saints. It's a book by our Sunday Visitor uh, Press, osv.com, called How the Saints Shaped History, written by uh, Randy Petridis, who was was a lawyer for 40 years, practiced law for 40 years. He holds degrees from the University of Michigan and Notre Dame Law, and has a master's in theology from Franciscan University in Steubenville. Uh, recently, we were scheduled to actually have this conversation a little bit earlier, but recently he became, uh, became a grandfather for the 17th time. Uh, we're talking today with Randy Petridis. Thank you so much for joining us on air today. It's a pleasure to be here, T.L. One of the things that is so intriguing about this book um, is that it is holistic. Oftentimes, we'll get a snapshot about the life of a saint in their particular period in time, and we'll see how they lived out uh, holiness in their context. And we can kind of uh, look at our own lives and see similarities and, and find a way to, uh, to relate to that saint. But you've taken a view of the whole arc of history uh, and shown how the saints not only in, interacted with their own time and with their own uh, place— but how the sanctity of saints across times and places have come together to help bring us to where we are. And I think in some sense, it goes to show us that where we find ourselves, our sanctity matters also and can make a difference, not only for our situation, but have long-reaching effects into the future. Absolutely. So tell me about the the beginning of this project. What was it? Uh, were you first drawn to the history or first drawn to the saints? Or was there a specific time period that gave you the idea to say, I'm going to put together this comprehensive view of history and of the saints? I think it first uh, came uh, out of history. Uh, I had completed my studies at, at Steubenville about five years ago and was looking to see what to do other than look at the certificate on the wall, so to speak. And so I started delving into history, gave up a, a church history a series at my parish. And as I was doing that, I realized the saints were right there all the time. I can remember history books from way back in the day where the saints would be little sidebars and then they'd go back on to what was considered to be history. But the more I got into the history of the church, the more I realized that the saints were front and center in making that history. And I think there's a really good reason for that. And that is that um, Jesus said he would be with the church um, always. He sent his Holy Spirit. So we know that the Holy Spirit would be working through the history of the church and has been. So how do you find the signs of the Holy Spirit working in the church? Well, you look to those people 
who are most open to his grace, those people who are most committed to uh, living out a life of discipleship. Those would be the saints. So if you follow the path of the saints, you can see the workings of the Holy Spirit in the church. And I was intrigued by that, and I noticed that there are wonderful histories out there, but this is a, a, an approach that hadn't been directly taken. There are a lot of histories that talk a lot about the saints as well they should. But I decided, you know, maybe I will just follow the saints through 2,000 years and tell the story of history that way. And that's, that's how that came to be. Mm-hmm. One of the things about studying history is you quickly learn that things are not that different today than they were through all the different time periods. And we see in the crises of history, uh, we see echoes of those same uh, turbulent times in our own time. Uh, One of the things that I am just intrigued by is how the saints encounter that uh, turbulence and that difficulty. And to see that there's not necessarily just one way to approach that turbulence with with holiness, right? Uh, so I look to the difference between, say, the way that St. Benedict encountered uh, the turbulence of his time versus St. Francis. And I wonder if you might point to maybe some of the examples that stood out to you of how the saints didn't just live their faith, but engaged their specific time and maybe point out and compare and contrast some that really stood out to you. Yeah. Yes, right there. Francis went out into the world, and St. Benedict uh, founded monasteries and went into cloister, and they both were very effective. Um, I To contrast, uh, one thing that came to my mind as I, you were uh, uh, phrasing this question was uh, during the time of the Enlightenment, which we're still living the effects of now, because Enlightenment philosophy is kind of what controls the secular West today. And uh, there are four saints that... Uh, I focused on as uh, examples of the church's response to the Enlightenment. And two of them were uh, uh, St. John Henry Newman and uh, St. Pope Pius X. And the other two were St. Therese of Lisieux and St. John Vianney. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were both very effective at standing up against the forces of an forces of enlightenment, but with radically different approaches. Uh, St. John Newman, a very holy man, but very brilliant man, sought to meet the enlightenment philosophies, liberalism as he called it, head on with his own deep scholarly approach. And so he could he could meet them and provide scholarly arguments for the, the truth of the faith in the light of all that was coming the other way. And St. Pius, Pope St. Pius X, did by simply defending the church from the effects of this, by de- de- declaring, no, God is God, and uh, th- these forces that are coming against us must be opposed. That's one way to do it. I really like, and I'm not saying it's better at all, you need both, but I really like how St. John Vianney and St. Therese Lazoux lived it out. I don't know if they ever knew that there was such a thing as an enlightenment that they were living in at the time. They simply pointed the way to God with... Uh, Tremendous holiness of life and a tremendous example of how to um, know uh, know how to live and gave tremendous witness to the reality of God, to the reality of Christ, to the reality of love. 
And that's why I kind of call, call them the counter-enlightenment saints, because they were such a contrast to the, the secularizing forces, the, the rationalism, the deism, and uh, um, all the other isms that came in that package that uh, really amount to uh, no-believe-in-godism, you might say. But uh, uh, so those two approached it, you know, just by loving God and telling everybody that God is to be loved and he loves us. That is powerful because that opens the door to grace. Mm -hmm. It opened the door to grace for them and it, it opened the door for people listening and interacting with them or, or even now reading of them, uh, opening grace to them as well. So grace abounds through holiness of life. And so that's within the enlightenment, that's a, a, a couple different approaches taken by different saints, both of which were very necessary. Mm -hmm. You talk, as you're talking about St. Francis, and I, I don't have it right in front of me right at the moment, uh, but, but you talk about for Francis, it was less important to him to point out what was wrong and more important for him to point out what was right and to point to what was right. Uh, and, and just as a, uh, I think so often we find ourselves trying to uh, to stand up for beliefs rather than necessarily pointing to them. And I think Bishop Barron talks about this as well, uh, uh, encouraging us to point to the great yes as opposed to focusing on all the no's. Yes, uh, it's so tempting. You know, I, I'm not speaking for you, but knowing myself, I'm so tempted to want to uh, speak out strongly against uh, what I see are the, the forces of evil, the forces that oppose God. And there is a place for that. And some of the saints did do that. But, you know, St. Francis is a good example of just exuding the love of God and attracting people that way so that there's not as much room for evil. Now, I put it in my book, and uh, it's kind of funny. I don't even remember where I got it now, but uh, uh, there was a—I um, I hope it's more than legend. I think it's, it's accurate, but uh, he attracted so many uh, young men to, to, to follow him, at least at the third order level, if not uh, directly, that the uh, warlords around in the peninsula of Italy were having a hard time finding enough soldiers to fight their battles. So he didn't do that by preaching out against the, the warlords. He did that by preaching the, um, the love of God and, and our uh, invitation to love God back. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think so often St. Francis gets co-opted as, as uh, someone who had uh, preached love without teeth. And of course, that doesn't do justice to St. Francis at all, because even as he's preaching the love of God, it's it's in a very powerful and and transformational way. It's it's a love that that challenges, and not just a love that says, "Oh, you're all right where you are." Right? Yes, yes. I mean, he was not some hippie, like he can sometimes be considered. Uh, he was very serious. He dealt with a lot of suffering. Uh, he was very resolute. He was very intelligent, and he knew what he was up to. And uh, Yes, he did understand the tremendous love of God, and that gave him a lot of joy. But, uh, but as he said, the secret to joy is to get beyond your circumstances and to, to fix your, your eyes on Christ. And that's a, a tougher lesson than just um, um, frolicking in the flowers or whatnot. But. Mm -hmm. Taking a look, because this book goes, as you mentioned, through the 2,000 years of church history. Uh, 
taking a look at history holistically and looking at it in light of the saint's activity through that holistic time period, do you view that history differently having looked at it through this lens than, than perhaps you had considered history before? Uh, yes, because uh, obviously focusing on the church history and the church being a divine as well as a human institution, it's really all about God interacting with us. It's, uh, uh, it's very sacramental and that we, people live history and make history, but God's grace is active for those who use it. And, and the, the more I'd get into it, that's, that's why I gravitated from, you might say, uh, a standard approach to history, a more academic approach history to looking at the saints, because those are God's prophets. Those were God's witnesses. So I think uh, throughout all the ages, starting at the, at the very beginning uh, and going through to our present times, you can see these individuals exuding the grace of God in carrying out his um, uh, his will uh, as opposed to say a king's will or the will of a council or a meeting or whatever and you know God's will is supreme and God's plan is supreme and his providence is supreme and seeing examples of God's providence through history uh, uh, through the saints and sometimes even beyond the saints so like one example being Something before I wrote this book I wasn't uh, even familiar with, which is the Battle of Vienna in 1683, where if it hadn't been for torrential rains in the uh, Balkans as the uh, Ottoman <clears throat> army was working its way up toward Vienna, they, forcing them to leave their artillery behind, uh, Vienna would not have been able, able to hold out until reinforcements came. I see that as, you know, God acting in history. Now, others may disagree, and I'm, I wouldn't take that to the bank as an infallible analysis, but I think it's, uh, I saw enough of that throughout the course of uh, uh, my research, throughout the course of the years, to think that, yes, God is active in history, and yes, that is real history, not just uh, um, what, the, what the secular historians might uh, identify. That strikes me because I think so often we talk about, we acknowledge and verbalize our belief in the providence of God. But so often when we're in the moment and we're experiencing our current present reality, which will be history eventually, um, we, sent to, we, we tend to, um, to fret an awful lot uh, about the outcome of certain situations. And we can look back at history and say, oh, look at how God was provident. And, and his providence was wrought. Uh, but when we look at our own situation, whether it be personal or, or societal, we, through our actions, doubt that same providence for our specific time and place. Do you find, having gone through and looking at the providence of God throughout history, do you find yourself having maybe more encouragement and more faith in God's providential care now? I do. Now, there are some caveats. I'm still human, and I can fret over a conflict in my schedule on the, the day after tomorrow or something and, um, and step back later and say, you know, you know, I could work through that with God's help. Uh, but yes. Now, the caveat would be we can't claim to know how long God's providence is going to take to unfold. Right. And uh, so, the, for example, the problems we see today, uh, there we can't say a prayer and expect that tomorrow morning we're going to wake up and everything's going to be heavenly. But 
we can look back at history. We can look at crises that are arguably bigger than the ones we had today, such as the Aryan crisis, which took several decades to work out. But it's amazing that God pulled that off. As St. Jerome said, looking back on those times, uh, one morning the church awoke, groaned, and realized it was Arian. And he said that because a majority of the bishops of the Catholic Church yeah. were Arian in their uh, perspective at that time. And how did the church get out of that? Well, the, the great saints that uh, Athanasius and uh, the Cappadocian Fathers and St. Cyril of Jerusalem and others uh, just never gave up and, and kept fighting and kept themselves open to God's grace and God protected the truth of the church, but it took several decades. Same with the uh, time of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, perhaps uh, the next most difficult challenge the church has had. So when we look back on that, yes, we can see there's every reason to be uh, hopeful because God will never abandon his church. Mm -hmm. He will always see us through. Uh, we will make mistakes, and we don't always get put back in the same spot that we were before after the mistakes are made, but he will see us through. Now, is it going to be tomorrow? Uh, is it going to be the day after tomorrow? Or is it going to be um, um, a larger number of years? Uh, maybe our children will see it. Uh, whether things get worse or better, we don't know that. That's within the mystery of God's um, um, providential role in history. But... I have come out of it, uh, T.L., with more hope because I haven't seen a time when God hasn't pulled his church out and almost always it's through raising up saints. We, we see the same tendency in Scripture, uh, that specifically in the Psalms, but even beyond that, where the people of God look to history to find hope for today. Uh, you, you see that the prophet saying, look at all of these times that God has come through for his people, even as they're facing exile or some difficult situation, uh, as a way of reminding that the current, the current situation doesn't define reality, and it doesn't define the totality of, of our situation. And I think just being human, we can so often get myopic and stuck looking only at the things that are right in front of us to the point where we get overwhelmed uh, and and anxious. And I love this particular book because it, it does that similar thing. It looks to history. It says, let's go back and see all of the ways that God has been faithful to his church before, even through crises, even through, um, through oppression, through uh, things being suppressed, and realize that we're on this side of it, and we have seen God be faithful over and over again, acting through the lives of his saints, acting on behalf of the church. And I think that it should inspire confidence in, in each of us that I can look around and say, wow, things aren't the way that I want them to be. And But that doesn't mean that I have to go to the, the extreme either of saying, well, there's no hope for anything and kind of throwing my hands up in despair. Nor yes. should I go to the other extreme and say, well, everything depends upon me and I have to fight uh, by whatever means necessary to bring about the outcome that I desire. Yes. But I can take that middle road of saying it's God's providence and it's God's church and I need to be aware and attentive to the Holy Spirit so that my holiness can affect the outcome, but realize that I'm not the determiner of that outcome. Yes. In addition to that, uh, looking at... Uh, 
we're talking about the sweep of history, but as we look at the saints within that history and how they looked at it, not only what they did to move things along and be open to God's grace and direction, but their own personal perspective is so inspirational. They kept their eyes fixed on Christ. They kept their eyes fixed on God. They had, I mean, um, struggles, but there was, there was serenity there because they knew that things were in God's hands. And, you know, you look at somebody like Mother Teresa in our own times here. You know, God calls me to be, be faithful, not successful. That's a tremendously deep uh, insight that she had, which means I'm going to depend on God. Yes, things around us, I mean, there's a poverty. I'm never going to be able to make a, a, a global dent in it. But I can make a di- difference in one person at a time. And I can trust that in the grand scheme of things, God is going to be in charge and see see me through, see us through. And uh, so someone like that in our own times inspires me because I can be, by my own nature, very anxious. So even in my personal life, aside from the historical impact of a daily walk of each of us, uh, I can look to a Mother Teresa or a Therese of Lisieux or a St. Saint, uh, Francis or, or those who did battle, such as Athanasius and others, and see how they simply put their minds and focus on on God, and they knew then that he's in charge. Even in just those four that you've mentioned, and I think we've touched on this a little bit earlier, there's such a diversity of how holiness is is evidenced in the world, right? You've got uh, uh, Therese of Lisieux who spent her time in the cloister praying for those outside the church. You have Mother Teresa who was in the trenches, right? You have all of these different expressions that are as varied as uh, as the saint through whom it was displayed. And I think sometimes we get in our own mind this idea that uh, holiness has to look a certain way, and we have to we have to kind of live up to that specific picture if we're going to really be holy. And and yet we see through the lives of the saints uh, an incredible diversity of of what it looks like when different personalities, different times, different people express their devotion to God. Yes, I mean you mentioned Saint Benedict earlier. Uh, he wasn't out there. Uh, tearing up the world, he was uh, gathering people to pray. And, and the, whole, the whole monastic tradition, uh, where we had so many great saints who were really unsung heroes in uh, um, holding the faith and holding really civilization together. And they did it, uh, for the most part, inside cloister. Whereas you've got the other people who are out there more active, uh, you know, St. Catherine, uh, knocking on the Pope's door and saying, get back to Rome. And uh, so there's room for every kind of uh, of ministry and apostolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think of, um, I mean, we all, we all have our, our favorite saints. Some of them uh, had that, that holiness kind of thrust upon them. And I'm thinking back to Athanasius, who you mentioned there, who uh, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, was just the, the governor of the town, and they made him the bishop. That might be Ambrose. Am- it is Ambrose. You're correct. They're, they both start with an A, right? All those saints kind of <laughs> kind of meld together. He he just he was a neophyte. He hadn't even really, if I recall, might not have even been baptized yet. He yes. was just exactly. wise. Uh, and in his execution of a, of a specific problem that the people were facing, they're like, well, we want you to be the bishop. And 
and that he had his holiness kind of thrust upon him. Whereas, you know, you've got these other people who developed their discipleship over long periods of time. Yes. And, you know, speaking of St. Ambrose, I, I think just recently in the last few months after the book has come out, I have thought that if there is a consummate bishop, the, like the best bishop that I can point my uh, finger on in all of history, I think I would pick him. With the courage, the uh, openness to God, the deep faith, the intellectual um, um, acumen, um, his tremendous pastoral zeal, standing up to emperors and forcing them to uh, repent of, uh, of sin, uh, leading his flock, convincing Augustine to be to come into the faith. Uh, He was a a superstar. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of that specific one, you bring up Augustine, holiness tends to go in packs, right? Uh, The holiness of one affects the other people in their, in their orbit, right? So you've got a lot of times where you've got brothers and sisters who are saints together because that family kind of just, the holiness of one spiraled out, the holiness of the parents affected the children, and you have like a whole family of saints, uh, as you yes. do with uh, with the, the St. Therese of Lisieux and her parents and sisters. Then you have folks like Ambrose, who uh, who brings in Augustine. You've got Monica and Augustine and Ambrose kind of in this orbit together. And I think in some point that all brings up not only the importance of sanctity, but the importance of sanctity in community, uh, a reminder that we're not islands unto ourselves. Yes, and another great family was St. Basil the Great's family with uh, his brother Gregory and uh, his older sister Macrina, who sat him down and said, don't throw your life away just being a lawyer. Of course, that's 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 what I was. <laughs> but uh, give your life to the Lord. You have gifts. You know, without her uh, giving him that big sister lecture, uh, who knows whether we would have had Basil the Great. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that is very true. The, the, the interactions in family or, or close associates. I'm always thinking of Abbe Bailey, who uh, dragged St. John Vianney through seminary and got him out to the other side because he believed in him. Uh, those are things that you and I can do, you know. Mm-hmm. Who knows, we just might be um, supporting the next great saint. But yes, those family uh, interactions, those uh, those personal interactions, it was just great seeing as I wrote the book, seeing all the interconnections between various saints that I didn't know were there. Yeah. The book, again, is How the Saints Shaped History. It's available on our Sunday Visitor. That's osv.com. And I have to tell you, it's a, it's a substantial book. Uh, it's beautifully printed and it's ex- exceptionally accessible. You've got the table of contents, but then immediately after that, you have a lovely little timeline color coded so that you know what part of history you're in. You can follow through and see where each of the saints interacted. And then it's just accessible. You enter in at whatever period you want. You can read it to cover to cover. I encourage that. But if you're interested in a specific place, you can jump right to that part of history and then look through how the saints interacted with one another. We're talking today with Randy Petrides. He's the author of How the Saints Shaped History. Uh, And there is so much more to this conversation right after the break. So I encourage you don't go anywhere, uh, but do come over to our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle's also at Step Outside the Walls. And come tell me about your favorite saint. If you know a story of how they interact with history, come and let us know. 
And we'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Randy Petrides. He has written a book called How the, Sh- the Saints Shaped History. And it's a lovely book that really goes from the beginning of the early church all the way through to today, looking at how the saints interacted with history, shaped history, and interacted with one another. It's a lovely book. Uh, a lovely piece showing us how sanctity lived out makes a difference. And of course, it's not just a history book. It's also a reminder to us today that sanctity matters. And as we live out lives of holiness, as we live intentionally as disciples, uh, we make a difference not only in our own lives or our own parishes, but we make a difference to the 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 current of culture. One of the things that you've done here, Randy, is often you'll see books that focus almost entirely on uh, Europe. We get a whole bunch of of European history because a lot of the church happened there. But you spend time in Africa, you spend time in the Americas, uh, and something that I think is often missing from those history books. So as you look to these other places uh, that are not kind of your typical European um, history. What what have you seen uh, in in Asia and in Africa and in the Americas that stands out to you uh, in a way that maybe we don't often see in in church history? Well, uh, since I wrote this book with the um, the eyes of faith, not as a detached, neutral uh, academic, um, I can look at some of the uh, the, the spiritual. Uh, um, um, happenings, you might say. And I suppose the, fir- the first thing that popped in my head as you asked that question, T.L., was uh, the miracle of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, in uh, 1531, I think I could be off by a year or so uh, here, but uh, um, just as one of the most monumental events in uh, world history, the the coming together of of European civilization to the Americas and to Asia and to Africa, just as that was happening in the 15th, 16th century, uh, with a whole lot at stake as to uh, whether or not missionaries could be successful in interacting with and preaching the gospel to uh, cultures that were radically different from um, the one that they came from, uh, God intervened. He sent his mother to St. Juan Diego, who had been evangelized by the first wave of Franciscans who came over with the conquistadors. So while the conquistadors were behaving badly for the most part, uh, the Franciscan evangelists were uh, very quietly uh, building relationships with the indigenous peoples and uh, attracting many of them to the faith, but not in large numbers. But then when God... um, uh, sent his mother to Juan Diego, and it resulted in millions of conversions in a very, very short time. I took that as a sign that God is moving his faith 
into the world beyond Europe. And uh, he would work with the people who uh, uh, were seeking to, in, in genuine ways, to uh, attract, to, to preach the good news and attract uh, uh, people of different cultures to the faith. And uh, um, obviously it's in the Americas where it stuck uh, the most and, and uh, the quickest as uh, North and South America became uh, Christianized fairly quickly. But also uh, I think of um, obviously St. Francis Xavier uh, who went to India and Japan and had great initial success in Japan. But that, uh, um, that had a checkered history afterwards, very interesting history there, especially in the Nagasaki area between him and, and World War II, ending with, or not ending with, but in continuing, even a great little discovery was that uh, um, St. Maximilian Kolbe uh, was involved with Nagasaki just a few years before the war started. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then uh, it's interesting, uh, history doesn't stop happening. Uh, yeah. I wrote a passage about uh, Matteo Ricci, uh, and I even had a paragraph acknowledging that he was not a saint. I'm talking about a non-saint, as I would from time to time. And then, lo and behold, St. Francis uh, declares him venerable. So I can now put him in my, since I use venerable as well as blessed uh, in my, my book here, well, now I can look at him. And uh, his quiet ministry in uh, China was really remarkable. No, it didn't lead to 50 million Chinese becoming Christian, but many did. And it uh, created a template for the future and how other missionaries would react. It was kind of controversial. He tried to uh, take the Chinese culture and show how it was not inconsistent uh, with uh, um, uh, Christian beliefs. And that he was kind of ahead of his time in so doing and, got him, and his approach was not accepted for a long time. But he was a, a pioneer there. And you look at the... Uh, uh, the Jesuit missionaries who, with tremendous courage in uh, um, seeking to uh, um, bring the gospel to the uh, um, indigenous peoples in the northern part of North America. And I'm still marveling at St. Isaac Yogues, who's mm -hmm. uh, tortured, goes back to France to recover, and then comes back. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but I would say, well, I did my best. Uh, I, right. I got my uh, Purple Heart. Uh, I'm going to stay here in France and teach other missionaries, but he went back, and uh, th that's a—they uh, didn't uh, convert millions of indigenous people either, but mm -hmm. they, they did convert some. But just that strong witness that they gave uh, reverberates through history as well. One of the things you bring up there um, is something that I think is often so something that we sometimes miss as we think about missionary work and evangelization is that these successful times, and I that started having this thought as you were talking about Our Lady of Guadalupe, that those successes come through a process or an event called enculturation. It's when the faith is expressed in the terms of that culture, which is uh, not to be confused with syncretism where elements of a, a religion exist and stay and are just commingled with Christianity, but rather it's the baptism and the appropriation and the, the, not the conflation, but the the, uh, 
the introduction and the sanctification of a particular part of culture uh, as uh, as part of the faith. And I think so often um, we see a mindset that says, well, everything about your culture is bad and needs to be done away with so that you can adopt a Christianity that looks like mine. And we see this, I think, even in the earliest days where there there was this idea that you had to be of a of the Jewish persuasion in order to be Christian. And that, of course, came up in the Council of Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, right. where there was that statement that, no, you, you can enculturate the gospel into this Gentile place, which is now why you and I are part of, of the, the Catholic faith. And I think that it's important for us to see as we evangelize, whether that be to, uh, to, to Asia or to uh, the Americas, or whether it's to our existing neighborhood and culture, that it good and solid evangelization recognizes what is good and right and true already existing and uses that framework to introduce the gospel. Yes. And uh, I, as you outlined there, starting with the beginning of our history, uh, it was a learning process. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, mistakes get made, and uh, uh, that's just part of being human, and you learn from them. But yes, the best of the missionaries did find that proper balance, that proper uh, um, respect for the uh, civilization that they were in, as well as uh, um, uh, the desire to, to preach the, the gospel as truth, not just as another religion from some other foreign foreign country, yes. And this, of course, the saints and the history uh, together, again, it's not just this for the sake of reading about history. It's for the sake of understanding our responsibility in the present. Uh, the book is How the Saints Shaped History. Uh, Randy, as we come to a close here, I wonder if you might tell us about two saints in particular. Um and those two saints are, are up to your choosing, but but there's a criteria that I'd like to use. Going into a book uh, where you're going to talk about the saints, I'm sure that you had kind of your favorite list, uh, saints that you already had a devotion to. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us a story about one of these saints that you thought that you knew and probably did know to a certain extent, but in your research came up with new and exciting information that you had not before known and share with us about that saint. And then the second one is I'd like to hear about a saint that you did not previously have a devotion to who you have come to love through the process of researching and writing this book. Okay. Um, I'm not sure which of the two categories it's going to be, but I'm going to start uh, with the saint that uh, I didn't have a devotion to, didn't know a lot about, knew that she was there. Uh, but was kind of blown away when I realized uh, uh, all that she did. And that's uh, St. Francis Cabrini. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was just, okay, fine. There's a, a, a high school in the parish not too far from us named after her, and Cabrini Green in Chicago was named after her. and So I knew she was out there as a, a missionary nun, but I didn't know uh, very much about her. And by the way, just one little thing that, really blew me away uh, is that in the year 1887, 
a pope who's not sainted, but whom I admire, Pope Leo XIII, had an audience with three different saints in that year and three different occasions and sent them on toward their ministry. One of them was St. Francis Cabrini, one of them was St. Uh, Catherine Drexel, and one was St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, and he told Cabrini, who wanted to go to Asia, nope, I need you to go to, to America. The Italian immigrants need you. St. Catherine Drexel said, uh, Middle America needs a missionary, uh, um, uh, some missionaries, and um, Pope Leo said, you do it. Mm-hmm. And she gulped and then did it. And uh, St. Therese of Lisieux blurts out, let them into, the, tell them to let me into the convent. He says, well, as a, if it's the Lord's will, it'll happen. And then six months later, it did. So, so uh, just a little shout out to Pope Leo, whom I really admire there. For, but anyway, back to St. Francis Cabrini. Um, she was the most indefig- indefatigable and uh, tireless worker that uh, um, I encountered anywhere, I think. She crossed the Atlantic uh, between Europe and South America and North America, I think over 20 times in in 28 years. And she set up shop in New York and she had to fight through all kinds of problems. They wanted to kick her out as soon as she arrived. Uh, And she just serenely fought through it with a tremendous trust in God, opened hospitals, taught the uh, took care of and taught uh, Italian immigrants, orphanages, schools. Then she'd moved on to Chicago and to St. Louis and to New Orleans and to Seattle. And uh, um, I'm forgetting all the cities that she went to here in Los Angeles. She she covered the whole country doing the same thing and and opening up uh, hospital and orphanage after hospital after hospital. And uh, then she did the same thing in Buenos Aires and Nicaragua. She went back to Europe and did it in Paris. And I just couldn't believe that a person could do so much and, and with this tremendous serenity, well, uh, like St. Uh, like, uh, Mother Teresa, you know, God's in charge, we'll take care of this. Uh, these people who won't let us uh, get a license to do this hospital, they'll come around, just, you just wait and see. And um, uh, so that would be one there, whichever of the two categories that you, you, you put her in. I suppose I put her in the, the category one I didn't have a devotion to. And the one that's very famous that I have a deeper devotion to now is St. Therese of Lisieux. Uh, I'm just getting deeper into her life during my research. Uh, she's like a prayer companion for me now. And I probably don't need to say too much about her because she's so, so well known to so many of your listeners. But uh, mm-hmm. she would be the other one that I would mention as well. But uh, so. we, were, we were on a family trip a couple of years ago and had the opportunity, uh, there's a, a Francis Cabrini shrine in just outside of Denver in Golden, Colorado, where she had a, um, a piece of property that was gifted to her on the top of a, a very steep hill um, that they used kind of as a summer camp for children from the, the, uh, the orphanages. And at the top of this hill there, they, they would have to go all the way down to the bottom of it to get water. Um, and it's, was just a huge trek. And I don't know the whole story perfectly, but one day she uh, gathered her sisters together and told them to kind of walk a certain direction. And they walked over to this place and I believe dug just a little bit and a spring was there. Uh, And just God provided for them a spring so that they didn't have to go all the way down to the bottom of of the valley to get the water. Uh, And just 
the the whole place um one was just a a story of God's providence both the way they received the property the way that God took care of them on that property uh and just that deep and abiding trust that God was going to take care of things and I don't have to worry about it I don't have to get bent out of shape I'm just going to keep moving along the way that I know I'm supposed to and I'm going to let God take care of the details and what what a prime uh, example that is for each of us. Yes, and multiply that Denver example by uh, 15 or 20. It's the same way every time. And it's and you can see God wanted the faith to be planted in the Americas. And she mm-hmm. is one of the prime examples, along with many, many others, uh, who answered the call to make sure that that happened. You know, without people like her, and what would have happened to the Italian community in America? I don't know. Uh, but uh, Italians have been bedrocks of Catholicism in America for, for generations, and she had a lot to do with that. So she planted that flag of faith with that serenity. So uh, yeah, you can tell I have a lot of enthusiasm for her, that she's the, the newfangled oh, wow saint for me, you might say. Yeah. The book is How the Saints Shaped History by uh, Randy Petrides. It's available on our Sunday Visitor. You can get it over at osv.com. You can also come over to social media because I got two copies of this and I want to give one of them away. Uh, Come and leave some comments. The instructions will be there over on social media. Randy, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been a pleasure, Tio. If you missed any part of my conversation with Randy or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends over on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And each and every week, we record a little bit more that does not make it to the broadcast, but we do make it available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we'd like to give them some extra content. You can get access to that extra content over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link to learn more and peruse through some of the older content that's now available to the general public. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That reading again comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And we read a little bit longer than we normally hear, because normally when we read the Beatitudes, we read the Beatitudes and stop. But this is just a reminder that all of those verses and chapters that we find in the Bible, those were added later. That's not part of the original text. Additionally, beyond that, even more recently added are those sub-chapter titles. Those were put together by the um, by the editorial committee that did the translation work on the version of the Bible that you're reading, and they will vary from translation to translation. And so sometimes it's good to sit and listen and hear um, a reading beyond the breaks that we normally hear. In this case, it goes straight from rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, right? Straight into that salt and light, which we tend to also hear isolated and just by itself. The, the way that we are the salt and the light of the earth is when we are uh, embodying the Beatitudes, when through the 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 gifts of the Spirit that come to us through the fruit of the Spirit that are evident in our lives as disciples, others see that good work and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Right? These two are intrinsically connected. The one is dependent upon the other. The way that we are the salt of the earth, the way that we are the light of the world, is when we are flavoring the world with holiness through the Beatitudes, when we are illuminating the world through the, the revelation of Jesus, right? As we, in our life, through our sanctity, through our holiness, are making Jesus known to others, as we are revealing him through our actions. And in this way, our sanctity, just as the saints who came before us, can change trajectories of, of peoples and of cultures, of individuals and of nations. But that happens when we are like Christ. And the way that we become like Christ is by fixing our gaze on Christ, on meditating on Christ, on, on giving ourselves over to the contemplation of who Christ is and what Christ did and, and spending time in the scriptures and with the saints to immerse ourselves in his presence such that every step we take from here on out, a little bit of his presence splashes off of us and out onto the world. That would be the kind of holiness that we live. Our reading today from Church History comes from a sermon by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. This was a, a sermon that was given on the Feast of All Saints, which it's a little bit early for us, but since we're talking about it today, I thought that it would be appropriate. 
Why should our praise and glorification or even the celebration of this feast day mean anything to the saints? What do they care about earthly honors when their heavenly Father honors them by fulfilling the faithful promise of the Son? What does our commendation mean to them? The saints have no need of honor from us. Neither does our devotion add the slightest thing to what is theirs. Clearly, if we venerate their memory, it serves us, not them. But I tell you, when I think of them, I feel myself inflamed by a tremendous yearning. Calling the saints to mind inspires, or rather arouses in us, above all else, a longing to enjoy their company, so desirable in itself. We long to share in the citizenship of heaven, to dwell with the spirits of the blessed, to join the assembly of the patriarchs, the ranks of the prophets, the council of apostles, the great host of martyrs, the noble company of confessors, and the choir of virgins. In short, we long to be united in happiness with all the saints. But our dispositions change. The Church of all the first followers of Christ awaits us, but we do nothing about it. The saints want us to be with them, and we are indifferent. The souls of the just await us, and we ignore them. Come, brothers, let us at length spur ourselves on. We must rise again with Christ. We must seek the world which is above and set our mind on the things of heaven. Let us long for those who are longing for us. Hasten to those who are waiting for us and ask those who look for our coming to intercede for us. We should not only want to be with the saints, we should also hope to possess their happiness. While we desire to be in their company, we must also earnestly seek to share in their glory. Do not imagine that there is anything harmful in such an ambition as this. There is no danger in setting our hearts on such glory. When we commemorate the saints, we are inflamed with another yearning, that Christ, our life, may also appear to us as he appeared to them, and that we may one day share in his glory. Until then, we see him not as he is, but as he became for our sake. He is our head, crowned not with glory, but with the thorns of our sins. As members of that head crowned with thorns, we should be ashamed to live in luxury. His purple robes are a mockery rather than an honor. When Christ comes again, his death shall no longer be proclaimed, and we shall know that we have also died and that our life is hidden with him. The glorious head of the church will appear, and his glorified members will shine and splendor with him when he forms this lowly body anew into such glory as belongs to himself, its head. Therefore, we should aim at attaining this glory with a wholehearted and prudent desire that we may rightly hope and strive for such blessedness. We must, above all, Seek the prayers of the saints, that what is beyond our power to obtain will be granted through their intercession. That reading again comes from a homily by St. Bernard of Clairvaux for the Feast of All Saints. That's all the time we have for today, but let us pray that through their intercession, we may share in their sanctity and be a witness to the world, salt and light to all around us. 
Today's show is brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.